This is Ancient Afterlives, surprisingly modern ideas from the ancient world. This episode is a coffee chat featuring Mike DeVries and Simeon Whiting. Alright, so War Scroll then. So what's new in War Scroll? Um, in fact, I'm a, I'm a total beginner with this. So I'm um, just start right yeah. from the basics here. What are you working yeah. on? What's the war scroll all about, and 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 what's new? Yeah, well, the the war scroll is um, for those who may not know, it it is one of the first seven manuscripts uh, that was found in Cave One. Um, early on in scholarship, the war scroll probably got um, probably had quite a bit of uh, attention drawn to it, um, and I think you know early on a lot of it focused on the text itself. Now the text um, is unique in that it has a section in it that um, has all of these what kind of war manual-esque rules about, about banners and trumpets and uh, infantry movements and different things. Uh, and I think that that intrigued people um, from the standpoint of genre. Like, is this some kind of a yeah. war manual? Uh, but yet at the same time, it's got this whole section of prayers which that that are supposed to be you know you know to to be recited during different phases of the war and I think what made it unique is that here's an opportunity where people actually see prayers alongside um, or at least within the same context of the war itself so mm. I think that intrigues some people and uh, um, there was always this kind of thought of of the elevation of the priesthood within the manuscript uh, the the priests actually play a tactical role uh, where they they are the ones who blow the trumpets and are actually moving the pieces around uh, of the army. And that that's always been a very, very fascinating piece. I think early on, um, more of the work was done on translation and commentary. Uh, people wanted to try and get their arms around, I think, you know, in, uh, you know the majority of, of kind of what the text was doing. Um, but then after that, I think one of the main questions, especially with the K4 fragments, because there are some, some K4 fragments of, 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 of a similar tradition, some that look maybe a little bit more like the War Scroll, some that look um, like they may precede that tradition, it might be a different tradition. And I think people, um, a lot of scholars kind of thought through the question of, you know, what does this mean for, uh, for composition? how do we understand the composition of it? And I think the early yeah. scholars thought, thought that it was like one written piece from beginning to end. And I think um, we now kind of understand the text to be well more composite than that. Mm -hmm. and, I, and I think, um, you know, that, that was fascinating to kind of think through, well, were parts added to this manual? Was the manual borrowed from Hasmonean? Was it Greco-Roman? Like where, where did these manual kind of ideas come from? And there are some comparables in Greco-Roman uh, Roman literature, um, but they don't obviously do the exact same thing. So have they come to any conclusions about, about who wrote the thing? Um, well, yeah. I, I, I mean, really, really, there's no firm decision on who wrote it. Um, we would say that it, 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 it shares enough um, so-called, quote, sectarian language uh, in common with uh, the, the community rule that we would say that it comes from within the Qumran movement. Okay. But, but I would say that it, the, the tradition itself probably precedes the actual 
uh, settlement of Qumran. Um, so I, I think that this idea, this tradition is probably within the Qumran movement, the larger Qumran movement, um, maybe for a bit of time before it, it gets, um, I don't know, I don't want to say reworked, but it, 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 gets, it gets into kind of a, some kind of a final form that we know of it in, in 1QM. Okay, so, yeah. so you kind of have a pre-existing tradition that kind of gets um, developed and embellished and added to. Yeah, yeah. So you know, one example of that would be we do have a we do have a manuscript four Q four ninety three, which seems to be a very early tradition. Of this and part of it looks very much like column seven, column nine of the War Scroll, only. Um, we can see that the war scroll has added Levites and chief priests and added these sorts of roles into those columns and that this tradition doesn't have that. And the tradition seems a little bit more of a earlier strata maybe of this. It's very difficult to draw a direct line. Uh, so we're talking about pre-existing traditions. We're so, talking yeah. about strata. We're talking about embellishments. It's, it's starting to sound to me well, a lot like Pentateuchal studies. Yeah, no, it, 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 I mean... I mean, it is, but yet we have to remember that these things were still held on to. So yeah. there was, you know, there is this sense where I don't think we can talk about, about one war tradition. I think we have to talk about that there's multiple expressions inside this war tradition that might oh, be okay. influencing each other. Um, 1QM, obviously the most well-preserved, unfortunately gets privileged over some of the others. Uh, we don't know if that was some exemplar copy or not. I think it's assumed that um, it does look like, like what Toe would describe as a deluxe scroll, but um, we don't know if it's like what, what they would have envisioned as the ultimate expression of this or not. We, we just look mm -hmm. at it as it's an expression of that. But I think, you know, um, more recently, there's been a renewed interest in this. It's funny that the, the trail kind of went dead. Uh -huh. in the 80s and 90s and it wasn't until you know sometime in the 2000s that we started we started seeing more articles beginning to be written on the subject of the war scroll uh, and engaging oh, was there anything particular prompted that kind of resurgence or was it just kind of people realized um, oh hang on we've, we've forgotten this this is cool well i think that um i think with the publication of the k4 fragments i think that obviously you know introduced a whole like a, like, a whole re-energizing of that but I think the first wave of that re-energizing was all compositional. But I think now with all of the scrolls that we know of published, we now are kind of revisiting some of these things again and some of the presuppositions that early scholars had. And I think it's amazing to see that some of what early scholars saw was so revolutionary, so good. Uh, and some of it really did need to be revisited. And I think we're, we're beginning to revisit some of that. I know my work's focusing a bit on the role of the priesthood, the role of purity, the role of ritual, and some of these things that are occurring inside of the text, how we understand that for maybe their vision of what they thought this war was all about. Um, okay, you know, that sounds I, very interesting. I think, yeah, because I think people look at this and they see these components, and they go, oh, it's just, it's an eschatological war. Yeah. It's a war that, that, that's going to eradicate evil from the earth. And my take's a little bit different than that. I, I, I think there's, I think that's in there, but I think there's something else going on. So. Okay, so you, you piqued my interest here. So what else is going on? <laughs> well, I think, um, 
I think what has not been put together, and I think people have touched on it, um, but I, I was very unsatisfied um, with some of the studies that had worked on this, but I think the idea of purity um, was very, very much at the forefront of the manuscript. And there is very much a concern for purity. So I think the flip side of that is there's also a lot of defilement language. Um, and I, my, my sense is, and it's that when, you know, when most people approach the war scroll, they think of it in terms of Daniel. Um, there are some very, very, very strong connections with Daniel. My take is, I think that there's one that has been overlooked. Um, it's, it's been discussed by some people, but I, I, I'm really wanting to bring it more to the forefront. And that is um, the book of Joshua uh, and the sense of purifying the land uh, uh -huh. and atonement. And we see oh, this yeah. kind of atoning idea in, in the community rule where it, you know, it talks about you know, living Torah correctly as a way to atone for the land, like the community itself was somehow involved in the atonement of the land. Um, and I think the war scroll has something going on with that as well. Um, one of the keys I think is there is the presence of harem inside of the war scroll. Um, it, it, you know, that, that, that term, obviously we know it from Deuteronomy, we know it from Joshua, yeah. but, I think, but I think it does not really um, play very strongly in second temple text, but here it is in this text. And I think there are some very strong linguistic connections between the war scroll and Joshua. And I think it is definitely portraying a sense that the eradication of Belial and these forces is not just to, to end evil, but is to purify the land in order to usher in the eschaton. So I think that there's something about this. And uh, there's some other manuscripts, I think, inside the corpus that, that hint at this as well. Um, so I think- That's this really is, interesting. Hopefully, hopefully something that I think um, other scholars can maybe put in their tool bag to think about eschatology and Second Temple period and how this might be right. playing out. So it's not just purity so. for purity's own sake, it's purity as a means to an end. And the end is, okay, we're bringing this eschatological agents, all is uh, generally yeah. cool and groovy. Yeah. Okay, yeah. So this, is, this, is, this is interesting, this is resonating with me because I've been, um, um, just this week I've been reading um, some scholarship about Exodus imagery in the sixth century prophets. Again, this is this is in aid of some of the corrections to my thesis. Um, mm -hmm. And there's some really interesting stuff about how the Exodus image is used um, in Second Isaiah and how that contrasts with how it's used in Ezekiel. So in Ezekiel, mm -hmm. that's all about purity and defilement, which is kind of, I think, where what you're saying is resonating with me. Um, so it's this sense that the um, there is, there is a true Israel, and if you're not one of the true Israel, then you're defiling the land um, by your by your sin yeah. and and by your rebellion yeah. against Yahweh. Um, so the the return from exile um, is going to be a second Exodus, and it's a means towards purification, and um, and there's an element of purge to it. So so Yahweh will meet you in the desert, um, and. Uh, Effectively, if you're not one of the good people, you're going to be obliterated. And then that contrasts with Isaiah, which is which is which is all lovely and eschatological, and, and Yahweh will gather your yeah. sons and your daughters from the north and the south and the east and the west, and everything's going to be lovely and will restore you in design. Um, yeah. So there's kind of a contrast between the two. But um, I'm really interested in what you're saying about how in the War Scroll, those two things seem to be almost brought together. So it's not a choice between purity yeah. and um, 
eschatological Yahweh dwelling with his people and, and um, bringing all his children together. It's, it's kind of both at once. It's, you know, it's really interesting that you bring up Ezekiel because I, I, I think there, there, is, there, there are some connections, obviously, between the War Scroll and Ezekiel. But I think that same ideology, just the way you explained it, does um, That does was a connect. gross oversimplification, obviously. <laughs> hugely glossed over centuries uh, yeah, of Ezekiel scholarship, yeah, but there we go. Fine. Yeah, but, but I think that it, it, it does provide a good description. I mean, you know, the Qumran movement, and especially the, especially the expression out in the desert, you know, um, saw themselves as the remnant, saw themselves mm. as the faithful. And, you know, one of the ideas, although, although I don't think it, it, it strongly comes out, I mean, you were talking about kind of a, a, kind of a reenactment of Exodus. I think there may be a sense of some kind of a reenactment of Joshua of conquest oh. um, when it comes to the war scroll. Um, but yet I think it's on a more cosmic level. Okay. Um, I don't think it's land specific. It's not that land over there as much as it's just the land from a larger cosmic eschatological um, kind of a, kind of a look, but, but yeah, that, that thought in, in Ezekiel is very, very similar. There's definitely a connection between those two. So, so yeah. That's interesting. Um, yeah. Um, and you wonder where this comes from. If there's that kind of, um, that, that kind of parallel, then in Ezekiel, um, there is a school of thought which suggests, okay, this kind of focus on purity and this obsession with purity and doing things in the right way and exclusivity um, they arise from the context in which it was written. Um, so there is debate on this. I'm not going to try and cover all positions at once, but um, there is a school of thought, which is that this was likely written, was likely put together uh, within the context of what was it, effectively displaced people's camp in Babylonia. So you've got a bunch of mm. um, exiles and children of exiles um, living in a community, living in an internment camp in Babylonia, um, and in this kind of context, this kind of um, almost hermetically sealed environment, really insular, um, then you get, as you do in modern communities of displaced people kind of kept together, you get this insular approach, you get this um, focus on, um, on purity and history and ethnicity. And that kind of expresses itself in this text, which was written in that context, which is all about us versus the world uh, and it's all about doing things in the right way and worshiping the true god and and therefore purity and not being polluted by those other nasty people who yeah. came from the same place yeah. as us but they're intermingling with the yeah. with the people in the land yeah and so, so yeah, i wonder whether, I, that's, whether yeah. that's at all relevant to the, the war scroll and how and when it was written um i i, I would say yes um, I would say when you look at things, even like um, you know the, the 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 supposed intermarriage crisis inside yeah. of uh, inside of Ezra and Nehemiah, um, there you know what what piqued my interest is there's there's a phrase used in the War Scroll to describe uh, the enemy that only shows up in places like Ezekiel, Ezra and Nehemiah, and the term is used for sin that pollutes the land. Right. So there, so there seems to be something um, at that time where this idea of pollution of the land, 
thinking about boundary markers, thinking about identity, and these sorts mm. of things. Yes, exactly. Seem to be caught up within this purity and impurity language. Yeah, it's all about you know, identity. It, it, yes. it's kind of deployed in that sort of a way. Uh, yeah, it's interesting. It's interesting that it's there as well. But yeah. all right. And that, with, and it's and you're right. It is it is all about identity. It's about a crisis of identity, one way or the other. Because you get people yeah. who are uprooted and forcibly dis, displaced from from their homes and just dumped into this foreign land. Um, yeah. People tend to go one of two ways. Again, this is an oversimplification. You either get <laughs> um, exiles who kind of group together in their community and never really interact with anyone else at all. Mm-hmm. But you also get people who especially in more urban areas, um, will find, well, they, they basically need to assimilate with the people around them and develop strong relationships and trades and um, basically they need to do that to survive. So the idea of assimilation um, affects their sense of identity because it's, well, okay, um, I can't just stay as the person I was with this ethnic identity. I need to kind of gloss over that and not be defined by where I live or where I came from. So. Um, identity mm. kind of slides, becomes flexible. But if you're stuck in this internment camp, identity is pretty much all you've got. Because that's because where you came yeah. from is the only real one thing you've got in common with everyone around you. So that's that becomes the yeah. focus. Um, so it's okay, this is where we came from, and this is what defines us. That's so your sense of identity shifts whichever way you go. It's it's, it's interesting stuff. So uh, um, the one book mm. I've got on my desk right now which is really helpful on this is uh, by Lisa Melke, who's um, an anthropologist. So her study was all about um, yeah. so Hutu, um, um, yeah, displaced Hutu people in, um, let me get this right, in Tanzania. They come from Burundi and they're in Tanzania. Um, mm-hmm. And then she investigates how the Hutu that settled in the internment camp responded and how the people who, res- who lived in the city responded. And there are some really intriguing parallels with the attitudes you see them express and and what you see in some of the exilic writings in the Bible. So yeah, cool stuff. I'm yeah, off on a tangent now, I think, but it's, it's, so that's what I've been reading. <laughs> that's great. I've been, um, I, I've, I've taken a little bit of a detour, just, just a slight one uh, from the war school. I've been working on ritual studies lately. Um, ritual studies. And, yeah, ritual, okay. yeah, ritual studies and ritual theory. And um, was, uh, I, was invited to, to work with Yuta Yokaranta on a on, on a chapter for an edited volume for STDJ that's going to be on Desi Scrolls and Ancient Media Culture. Um, and, sorry, just for the um, uninitiated, STDJ. Oh, I'm sorry. Studies in the text of the deserts of Judah. So, uh, cool, there we go. So yeah, that's kind of you know the you know you know the big Dead Sea Scrolls you know series. Yep. Which no one really knows about, but I'm like, so um, but um. It was it was really enlightening to kind of really think about ritual studies and how important ritual studies has really been to like study the Pentateuch and uh, the study of the Hebrew Bible and how we understand that, but how it's really um, not made its way deeply quite yet, I think, into into the scrolls world. And I think most uh, most of the works kind of centered around Catherine Bell's work, uh, you know, her six kind of six category typology of different types of, uh, of ritual, um, you know, obviously those have been kind of overlaid over the corpus and people tried to kind of understand, you know, actual, uh, you know, prayers and thoughts and different things like that. Um, 
But um, one of the things I've been really struck with is, I mean, especially I think because of the war scroll, the war scroll is like this imagined thing. It, it's not necessarily prescriptive. Um, it is kind of an imagined war, but yet it's filled with ritual. And the question, I think, when you get to textualization of ritual, like a ritual that's written down, why is it written down? I think sometimes our, our first go-to may be, oh, that's just a codification of, of, of teaching of like how this ritual should be performed. But what if it has a rhetorical value? And I think, at least in the war scroll, what I've been thinking about is um, in column two, there's this discussion about uh, the first phase of the war is literally recapturing Jerusalem. And, and there is a reinstatement of temple sacrifices and a whole discussion about it. But it's not really from a teaching perspective as much as it's, it's meant to give the vision that now these things are being done correctly. Okay. And so, so, so it's propaganda. Sense, yeah. So like in this sense, like ritual isn't a codification of like what, what you should be doing it has rhetorical value. It's saying something about the war, that the war is beginning to um, set things aright. Um, and there's even this sense where, because the war scroll is also very concerned with calendar and all of these things, there's also, I think, this other sense that it is very concerned with um, setting cosmic order correctly. So that the use of ritual inside of the war scroll may not just be a priestly phenomenon, although the, the, the text is very priestly in character, but it might serve something bigger. And I think, uh, you know, there, there are plenty of people who are, who are beginning to kind of think, think this way about even some of the biblical texts, like maybe, you know, maybe some of Leviticus isn't really explaining how you should do something. It's saying something bigger about what's happening within this, 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 this sacrifice, this moment. Okay. So things are being done this way because of the war, because the war is setting things right? Or is it a case of, okay, because things are being done right, the war is going as we want it to go? It's both, I think. <laughs> okay. Oddly enough, like the vision is, okay, now that we've captured Jerusalem, we are now being to set a temple, you know, the, the temple operation correctly. However, I think it is also saying you know, this is a goal, not just a goal of the war, um, but this may be a weapon of, uh, of the war. A weapon? And I think there are thoughts about liturgy, uh, performance of these, these things in, in, in the community itself. If it's reading these prayers, performing them, it's somehow enacting this, this victory. They're experiencing this victory. You know, it's kind of like, oh, okay. so I'm kind of seeing the overlap with Joshua again. Yeah. Yeah. And I think the overlap with, with, you know, your work is you're thinking about Exodus and you're thinking about the reenactment of Exodus. When you celebrate this, you're, you're reenacting it, but, but you're also bringing it about in a certain way. You're bringing about liberation. Um, so there is some sense of that. I think, uh, it, you know, is, is also happening there. So the ritual is not, at least in my estimation, necessarily just there to explain, oh, see, things are going to be done right. But I think there is a sense of joining in the cosmic order, um, right. trying to set cosmic order correctly. 
that the war itself is really concerned with that. Um, Carly Crouch has a great book uh, where she was kind of dealing with ancient, ancient warfare and mythology. Um, and she was one of the first people that I think the light bulb began to come on for me. She had mentioned that Kerem was actually about the ordering of the world. It was about setting uh, the world okay. right. And I, I, I think that is not just a concept that you can apply into Joshua Deuteronomy, but, uh, but, but I think that is echoed in the War Scroll as well. But there's this sense of bringing about cosmic order and victory over chaos. Uh, that when you perform these rituals, you are somehow maintaining and creating order. Maintaining and creating order. This is fascinating. So when's this chapter coming out then? Because I want to read this now. <laughs> Oh, well, uh, in the final stages of submitting. So uh, you know, I'm hoping it's going to be done here pretty soon. And then uh, we'll, we'll, we'll be able to, to kind of move on from there. But, but yeah, it's, it's, it's something I've been thinking about lately is this idea of textualization of ritual. And when ritual moves into a textual world, what does that open up for it? Um, how does it become powerful? How does it become yeah. a tool of change or a tool of communication, a tool of, uh, you know, cohesion of identity uh, to be able to, to, to bring those things to fruition. And I think, you know, that, that may be the next level. I'm beginning to think about in the war school, but I think it has wide use inside of um, the schools, probably in the larger kind of confines of, of, of study as well. So yeah, it was really enlightening working on this chapter and kind of seeing ritual studies you know, being used in some really creative ways. And I think, um, you know, that's led to, um, I think there's a resurgence of people asking questions about performativity uh, and performance um, and to what level uh, the war scroll was something that was read aloud. Rebecca Haig has talked about this, um, you know, about it being read aloud and what power does that have within the community when this text yeah. is read aloud? And how, do, how does the audience and the reader experience this? And how's the text written in ways that's experiential for a reader, for a listener, for an audience? Um, and what might that bring about? I think those are, those are you know, some, some new avenues I think they're going to hopefully come along for at least the war scroll. But I think, you know, may have some wider usage. Um, yeah. And, and as, you, as you suggested, I think um, if we do follow through these new conclusions, then that that could make a difference to how some of the stuff in the Hebrew Bible is interpreted as well, because, um, or, and as you said, Leviticus, for example, is, you know, traditionally read as this codification of, of ritual and cultic worship. But what if there is this other angle to it as well? Yeah. And I think that, you know, Leanne Feldman has done a ton of work in this area. Um, you know, her, her stuff is just fantastic. I've learned so much from her and, um, you know, gleaned from her wisdom in this. And she's really looking at rituals in a very different way. Um, priestly rituals within Leviticus, and within, you know, oh, right. okay. strata of, of the Hebrew Bible. Um, so yeah, if anybody's interested in seeing kind of how this might look in the Hebrew Bible world, I would highly recommend her. <laughs> so. All right. So, yeah. Cool. Leanne yeah. Feldman. Okay. Mm -hmm. I was just checking the bibliography for my thesis to see if Feldman was in there. Not yet. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Well, uh, she just had one volume come out. Uh, she's got some other things planned, but uh, yeah, she, yeah, she's yeah, she's fantastic. So she's at uh, 
she's at NYU right now, New York University. All right. So yeah, and she's a she's a really really great thinker when it comes to to kind of priestly theology, priestly conception, priestly literature. Um, so yeah, she's one of the foremost people I think right now thinking in that area. That's awesome. So what's next then? So when you've uh, when you finish this off, is it back to the thesis or is it find something else to do? Yeah, no, 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 no. I think it's back to the thesis. I think that there's there's some more, uh, you know, just just as you let it, and, and I'm sure you've kind of experienced this after you've written it and you let it sit and then you're moving on to another section. Yeah. And you start seeing other connections start coming up and you you end up reading something and it, it, it creates a new avenue, some new possibilities. I think that there's a few things to revisit um, oh, yeah. going back into going back into the thesis and then, you know, we'll submit from there and see where see where things go i think i'll always obviously we'll always stay in the scrolls world i think there's still some work to be done on on the war scroll um I, i'm i'm really intrigued with the some of the connections between the war scroll and the community rule okay. i think there's 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 some connections there i might i might do some work on that in the future and kind of see where that goes and i'm i'm, I'm I, I think that there's something else out there i've been thinking also recently just about um, religious extremism, uh, kind okay. of the idea of how is it that people read religious texts and they become something violent, you know? Because I think one of the big questions about the War Scroll is like, this community, how could they produce or, or transmit such a text? It just seems very out of character for the community. Uh, so there's always this question, like, how, how does that happen? And I think that the issue of religious violence, um, how, how, how does violence end up finding its way into um, religious thought and religious text? And what is the, um, why, why is that happening? What is the, what is the functionality of that? What, what, what role does violence play? Why does this seem- Wow, there's a whole load of stuff to unpack. I know, yeah. and I think, yeah. And I think that really brings some of this research out of antiquity into the modern world. Because yeah. I think there's some correlation there. Like, how is it that we see yeah. oh, no, no, I'm sure. today read their own text and come to radically violent interpretation? How does that happen? What's, what's, the, what's as going you've been, on? Because as you've been talking, as you've been telling me more about what's in the war scroll, this kind of combination of ritual and um, tactics and warfare. Um, so you've got this bunch of people stuck out in the desert fighting a holy war. Um, I'm sure I'm not the first person to make facile connections with Islamic states, but I'm, I'm seeing the parallels there. So you've got a bunch of people who see yeah. themselves as being in, in some way um, chosen by God, and they're fighting this war, and there's a very clear ritual and religious yeah. element to it as well. So um, uh, that, that connection's probably been explored already, but... Uh, it's yeah, to me it, from what you were saying. Yeah, and it, it definitely, you know, you know, the question, and, and Alex Jason has, has done some work on this, specifically with the War Scroll and the Qumran community, like, how do we get, how does the Qumran community get from a text um, like 4QMMT, which would be like, we want to discuss with you some things that we don't agree with you on, and we hope that you will listen to us. How do you get from that? To we are the we are the true remnant of God. Yeah. To not we are the sons of light, and we must destroy the sons of darkness. Like, like that is quite a 
progression, right? So, There's some you know, really interesting psychology draw, going on there. Yeah, and some people try and draw a straight line through all those, and I, 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 I would caution. I, I don't think you can do that because, again, these texts are moving at the same time. Um, so it's not like there was one thought and then that was abandoned for some other thought and abandoned for some other thought. Um, you have a lot of these thoughts moving around at the same time inside of the community. Um, so yeah, but I, I, I'm really fascinated with how that is. And yeah, you're not the first person to ask me my thoughts on the Islamic State. Yeah, After they I find can out imagine, I work so you probably fed up talking right? about that by now. Oh yeah, you get, yeah, you, you know, that, that question comes up is like, well, how does this play out? And I'm like, well, it, it is interesting. I mean, there, there's this thought of we need to get rid of this and we need to other the people. We need to almost dehumanize them in order to um, follow through on the wholesale removal and slaughter of these people, I guess you would say. Um, so it is a really interesting thing. So I'm, I'm feeling like there's, you know, I, I think there's something popular coming too that I've been thinking about, like trying to like maybe draw some lines and try and think about how, what we can learn from antiquity and what light that might shed on today. I, I don't know. Well, it's, it's just one of those projects that's sitting, it's sitting in the to-do list, right? It's sitting oh, wow. in the writing yeah. project idealist somewhere. Oh, but, I, I, yeah, I know what you mean. I've got an, an ever-growing list of stuff I want to write and I've got time to do it. So. I know, I know. So, okay, so, um, so I'm fascinated with your stuff on trauma. I'm like really interested in that. Like, how did you see trauma theory really enlighten, I think not just the book of Exodus, but like even how that, tra how that tradition plays out in the hands of different latter communities? H how did you- uh, The Exodus tradition. You see that? Yeah. Um, well, the, the whole thing about earlier and later traditions now has developed that's massively complex and I've tied myself in knots yeah. trying to work out what yeah. I think of that um in terms of trauma um and seeing that in exodus um it kind of started out at the beginning of my doctoral research as okay let's take this theoretical lens lay it over the top of this text and see what happens um so it's actually my supervisor he suggested okay why don't we take a look at this and run with it and uh, and see what we get and to start with, I was sceptical. I thought, well, yeah, okay, so we've got this trendy new theory, and this, yeah, I'm really not sure it's going to work, but let's, let's, let's give it a go. It was, it was almost kind of a thought experiment, I suppose. So I did a whole load of reading on the psychology of trauma and how it affects people, and some background on, on survivor literature, so the kind of literature that gets written by people who've been through an experience of trauma, and where you can see markers of trauma in the stuff they've written. And it was then a case of, well, okay, let's take this framework and read Exodus in light of this, so kind of lay it over the top of it. And, and actually there's some parallels there, it kind of works. Um, so it's things like um, a sense of rage, anger, violence come, comes through from it. Um, there are hints also of guilt and shame on the part of the Israelites. Um, and there are, um, it's a sense of helplessness to it, maybe indefinitely a, a sense of fear. And the fear works in an interesting way because in, in the context of the story, uh, then it's very much the Israelites who are trembling in fear as they see this, these Egyptian hordes coming towards them and threatening to wipe them out and uh, 
and kill them in nasty ways. And then in the in the, the song of the sea that follows, it's flipped. And all of a sudden it's the nations who are trembling in fear as, as Yahweh and his, and his people pass by. So there's, there's fear all over it. So in, in terms of where the trauma thing came from, that's where it came from. And, and there are those mm. markers in the text that suggest it's there. Um, now, where it starts getting complicated is when we start talking about when, where and by whom the thing was written, um, mm. where the whole tradition came from in the first place. These other books of the Bible, so we've mentioned the second Isaiah and Ezekiel, for example, that, that, uh, that are using this tradition and which was written first and who's borrowing from who. So that, that all gets really quite complicated and not that interesting. Um, so, I mean, as soon as you start asking questions about the, the Pentateuch in general and who wrote it and when, then there's a whole raft of different theories you can choose from. And people talk with great confidence about this issue and espouse their favourite theory and shout down people who disagree with them. And nobody knows. This is the thing. Nobody knows. It's impossible to know. How could we possibly know who wrote this thing and when and where and how? Um, but we can make uh, we can make fairly informed guesses. Um, so uh, it seems pretty clear that the finished text is composite. You know, there are contradictions, there are repetitions, there are sudden shifts. Um, it seems very unlikely it was written by one individual. Um, so it's, it's likely composite. You can get, if you really want to, um, you can get into linguistic development as well. And some of this stuff is pretty clearly a very early form of Hebrew. So I suggest it was, it was, it was pretty old. Um, some of it, not necessarily so. Uh, so, yeah, I think the most likely theory was, is we had at least some kind of Exodus tradition um, would have been pre-exilic. Um, and somehow, um, somehow we're not entirely sure how, but this tradition was then taken to Babylon and embellished um, probably quite a lot. Um, my, my hunch and actually, well, it's not just a hunch, done quite a lot of reading about this. I reckon the pre-exilic stuff was not particularly well formed, um, but it was much more developed and nuanced um, and shaped in exile, and then shaped even more in the Ehud community um, yeah. following the return. So, yeah, probably early fifth century. So at each of these stages, you know, it, it was developed and added to and, and quite grandly embellished. Um, so at any of those stages, um, the element of trauma could have crept in, but probably the most likely candidate would have been the fall of Jerusalem and the forced deportation to Babylon, because I mean, that's the, uh, the fall of Jerusalem, the exile is this shadow that falls right over the whole Hebrew Bible, really. Um, yeah. So that, I think, is the, the most likely origin for where the, where the trauma came from. Wow. Yeah. Interesting. So that's, that's my thesis that, in five minutes. <laughs> oh, well done, well done. Thank you. Yeah, no, that's that. No, that opens up all sorts of of understanding because I think you know there's there there for me there's this sense of that you know tradition having um, you know a life of its own and it you know different people picking up on this tradition, different writers and 
uh, you know, embellishing and writing and like using it for their own, their own context, their own context. Um, and that's kind of the same thing with Joshua. I think there's, there's, there's some sense of Joshua that echoes, um, just like I know you've seen, you know, Exodus be echoed in other places and picked up upon. So uh, that's interesting. Uh, the really cool thing is, um, it, it, it's seeing how trauma theory is being used uh, in, in, and understanding all sorts of biblical texts at the moment. I mean, it, it started out um, mostly with a, a handful of scholars looking at Jeremiah, Lamentations, and Ezekiel, because those are the texts that I mean, really yeah. you can't ignore the trauma. You know, yeah. it, it's all oh, yeah. over those books. You, you know, there's yeah. not much argument about it. Um, where it gets where it gets really cool is where people are taking this theory and running with it and basically doing what I did, kind of layering this theory over the top of another text and just seeing what happens and seeing, does this fit? Yeah. Um, so Kathleen O'Connor has done some really interesting stuff with Genesis um, as well as Jeremiah and Lamentations. Um, there's a, a couple of other people who've done some stuff on Exodus, I think. Um, um, the one example I would come out with is a guy called Aiton Birnbaum, but he's not particularly good example because his reading of Exodus is a bit simplistic. Um, and there are also people doing stuff in the New Testament as well. Um, so there's okay. a, a couple of people I spoke to recently, I think are in Edinburgh, and they're doing some stuff with New yeah. Testament and, and trauma. Yeah. So it's, um, yeah, it's turning out to be really quite a fruitful avenue of inquiry. It's, it's, it's really interesting seeing what people are coming up with. Wow. Did it, did it change? Um, like, like knowing trauma theory, applying trauma theory, did, did it change kind of your, your reading of, of the Exodus narrative and the Exodus tradition or how did it like transform your thinking of how you, how you understood it? Um, I think it's challenged me in a couple of different ways. I think it's, uh, I think it challenged a lot of my, long-held assumptions about what the text is and what it does um and apart from anything else um for anyone who comes from a confessional background um then you read a text like this and the whole idea of trauma influencing how it was shaped um and is this really what we think it is is this really a, a, a an account of uh, a divine vindication is this account of, uh, an account of any kind of miracle um or is this a revenge fantasy yeah uh, and i mean but, i mean yeah and then that you know raises for me the thought of like hope does it bring hope in in in, in some certain way to the trauma or does it not um yeah, I think so. I mean, the conclusion, I don't, I don't want to steal my own thunder here because I want people to read my thesis. Um, but um, one of the points, one of the conclusions I draw is that um, the text arises from a context of pain and suffering from loss. Um, and trauma is manifest in the text they produce, but they do this in such yeah. a way as to present it. Um, they, they flip their trauma on its head. Um, so their experience was of being terrorized by their enemies and driven out of home and, and forcibly displaced. And um, they turn it on its head um, and they um, they envisage returning into a land that's being granted to them by their gods. It's so they, they were victims and now they're victorious. They were oppressed and now they're vindicated by their deity. They were 
uh, forcibly displaced and now they've got their homelands. They were terrorized by their enemies and now the deity acts on their behalf and wipes their enemies out. Yeah, um, so yeah, so this is their future. The past was pain and loss and suffering, but the, the future they envisage for themselves is security and, and vindication. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that that goes back to, you know, um, I, I bring this up in, in classes that I teach at the university, this, this idea of historiography, like history yes. is told just to, to capture a photograph. It's more of a painting. It's, it's more of a interpreting the past for the present because there's a message in the present that the past is being crafted and used in order to present an idea in the present. Um, uh, and a historiography, yeah, that's, 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 that's a really interesting angle. Um, and, and again, this is this kind of comes back to uh, the whole concept of Pentateuchal composition because there, um, there are a few guys out there. I think it was John Van Seters um, who suggested that the Pentateuch was largely composed with a bit of help largely composed by the Yahwist, but working much later than expected, and that he was influenced by Greek historiography. So he's working from guys like uh, Herodotus and influenced by, by some, of the, some of the forms and some of the tropes they were using. And then a second theory to its conclusion. So I think it's, oh, uh, was it Ken Noll? Was it Lemke? Anyways, there are some other guys who are saying, well, okay, it wasn't just the forms and the tropes. He's basically taken this whole thing and dumped it into his own book um, and given it, a, um, given it a Hebrew feel to it. But the point of it, the point they're trying to make is this, this shouldn't be understood as being history in the, yeah. in the sense that a modern reader would understand history. This is historiography. So it's there to convey yeah. truth, but it's there um, to convey truth in a way that's more true so it's not yeah it's not literal fact it's well okay here's how it should have happened yeah um yeah i'm not sure how far is, i agree with these guys but the concept no, of historiography no, yeah. is really interesting yeah philip davies made what that that last point you made he, he made the exact oh thing. yeah yeah that sounds like the kind of thing philip davies would have said it, yeah yeah he, he well for an article in the tnt companion to the dead sea scrolls there's a section on um, ancient historiography and like the, the the first paragraph he kind of tears apart the uh the miriam webster's dictionary definition and he <laughs> he, he, he kind of says that yeah history is, is written um about the way it might have been or the way it should have been you know yeah. and so it's kind of a yeah there is there's there's some license in that but i think you know go, going back to what you're talking about about trauma like the use of that um is very much using the past or crafting the past yes. or speaking of the past yes. in a way that is actually more functional for the present. Yeah, so you and revise then, the past, you, uh, you repurpose yeah. it to fit your, yours and your community's interest in the present. Yeah, you know, Charlotte talks about, um, Charlotte talks about uh, the, the, the community rule being like a curated community where it's like you've crafted this image, kind of like modern day um, social media, right? You, you've crafted your image for the public to see. You know, what if right. these texts have that function as well, where it's like part of this crafting is presenting how we should be or what, you know, uh, you know, so, you know sort of an idea um, as opposed to life on the real ground. Like this is actually what we do. It, it's more of some kind of a curated vision 
yeah. of, of what of what a community should look like or what you know but how how close does that match the reality but yeah it's it's, it's interesting that you're kind of thinking you know trauma and and how that plays out that narrative plays out later on for other communities you know that's kind of always been my take with the book of joshua has always struck me as a book that is um the message is very much for exile it's very much for the people mm -hmm. going back into the land you know when you go back in the land don't do what your forefathers did do what the joshua generation did now obviously yeah. like don't go do that but the idea of obedience the idea of of being obedient, being able to keep the land once you go back in. I think it shows that same kind of an idea of using the past, some narrative, some epic, to be able to say something extremely important in the present. Very cool. <laughs> I'm going to have to read some more stuff about Joshua now. It's funny because <laughs> I set out to write a thesis about Exodus, and I have, and it's great. But in the, but in the course of doing that, I found myself tapping into all sorts of other stuff. So I've, I've looked at Genesis. I've looked at Psalms. I've looked at Ezekiel, Job, Lamentations, Deuteronomy, Second Isaiah. <laughs> um, yeah. I, mean, it's, I think partly because the whole Red Sea story is, 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 is a trope that runs right the way through the Bible. And it, it's, mm. it's, it's, it's so vivid that it's resonated with, with people for centuries. But because it runs through the whole Bible, there are so many references to it. And you've got to look at some of these other references to really get a rounded picture. It's kind of with tentacles shooting out in all directions. Yeah. Brilliant. Well, thanks so much. And thanks for the evening. I've really enjoyed that. Oh, yeah, that was fun. It was a good time. It was really, really good. Time. Bye -bye. You've been listening to Ancient Afterlives. If you'd like to contact us, you can email ancientafterlives at gmail.com or find us on Twitter. Thanks for listening.